0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, this morning we'll be looking at verses 6 through 13. Please give your full attention to God's word. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. There was a term that was very popular in pop psychology in our culture, A while ago that I really don't hear much anymore. It was a term, codependency. I actually found it as a kind of, I think after a while, got to be something that was kind of mocked, but I actually found it as a rather helpful term. It was a word that described what I knew to be in my own experience with others and also in shepherding a flock of God's people The fact that we can sometimes have very unhealthy relationships, where we can get close to other people and develop deep relationships with them that become unhealthy, that we often overlook and misunderstand those relationships because we think all relationships are good. The definition for codependency that I came with, I just looked online to see how They define it, and I found a lot of different definitions. But here's one that I think at least expressed how I understood what it meant. Codependency is an excessive emotional or psychological reliance on another person for approval and a sense of identity. Let me read that to you again. It's an excessive emotional or psychological reliance on another person for approval and a sense of identity. I've seen relationships like that in parent-child relationships. I've seen relationships like that in marriages. I've seen friendships that are like that. Yes, they're close, but they're close in an unhealthy way. They depend upon each other, which isn't inherently wrong, but they depend upon one another in an in a unhealthy, hurtful way. Codependency is, in essence, an inability to stand alone, an inability to stand up against the pressures, an inability to stand without another person alongside of you. The word codependency popped into my mind this week as I was studying this passage because I read a verse, and often when I'm looking at a passage, usually what I'm looking for is kind of a key verse, a verse that will state what the main point of the passage is. And I decided that verse 8 was that verse in this passage. Verse 8 says, Paul's writing to the Thessalonian Christians, and he says, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. He's saying, I live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And when I first read that, I thought, codependency. The reason I thought that, it wasn't just my own thought. This this was the commentary that I read from John Stott. John Stott, a very respected scholar. This is what he said, commenting on that verse. He said, Paul's life was inextricably bound up with the lives of the believers in Thessalonica. And again, I thought, codependency. How can that be a healthy thing? If Paul says, I can't live unless I know that you are standing firm. But I want to reassure you that as I studied the passage more, I came to the firm conclusion that Paul was not codependent upon the Thessalonian Christians. Actually, Paul here is displaying a very healthy affection for fellow believers, and he's also expressing a godly dependence upon other believers. And I think it's important that we be able to recognize the difference. There is an essential difference between healthy dependence on other brothers and sisters in Christ, and an unhealthy codependence. In this passage, Paul uses that term, standing fast, and that's one of Paul's favorite phrases. You see it often in his epistles, in the letters that he writes to the churches. It's one of his main goals for the people that he taught, the people that he shepherded, the people that he cared for. That was one of his main goals, is that they be able to stand fast, that they be able to stand firm. And what he means by that, if you look at them all in context, what he means is that they would be emotionally and psychologically and spiritually whole, that they would be strong in their inner being, that they would be healthy spiritually, that they would be mature, mature so that they would be unchanged by circumstances, no matter how difficult they become. So that they could stand firm or stand fast against all suffering, against all opposition, against all temptation. To be immovable in their faith. That was one of his main goals. Maybe even I could say his main goal, the purpose of his ministry. So the question then becomes, how do we get there? How do we learn to stand fast, to stand firm against the storms of life that are inevitably going to come, as we saw last week? Again, this is a very emotionally charged portion of Paul's letter. Paul is laying his heart open here before these believers, these new believers in the church in Corinth. Remember the the, the context of this, the circumstances, is that Paul was torn away. We saw that last week. He was torn away by his own words from the Thessalonian believers. He had planted the church. He had preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. They had believed and these new believers were just beginning to get established in the faith when Paul and Silas and his associates were torn away by opposition. They were forced to leave the city of Thessalonica. And for months, Paul has been deeply concerned about how these new believers are doing. These are baby Christians. And they are. he knows that they have been facing opposition and persecution themselves. He's deeply concerned. And he hasn't heard anything for months. And then finally... Timothy, his associate, has returned to him with a report. And we've seen that this was a good report, an encouraging report. It was good news. Basically, we can see from what he writes here, there were two main elements of Timothy's report about the Thessalonican Christians. It says, first of all, these new believers are growing and thriving in their faith and obedience in spite of the persecution and opposition they were facing. And then secondly, Timothy reports that they love Paul and they long to see Paul again in spite of what their enemies and Paul, their persecutors and Paul's opponents have been saying about Paul. All the slander and false rumors that they have been spreading about Paul. Still, they don't believe it. They trust Paul and they long to see him again. And so what we see in this passage, the first part of it, if you're looking in the ESV, the first paragraph there, that's just, again, a very warm heartfelt expression of love and concern for the Thessalonian Christians. And then the second paragraph, the second part, beginning in verse 11, is a prayer for their continued growth. And what we see in these two sections, I think, are the two keys to learning how to stand fast against the trials and storms of life. What what are the two keys to growing and thriving spiritually even in the midst of suffering? The first one is the strengthening effect of mutual encouragement. This is a call that is placed upon all believers. The call to be mutually encouraging one another. Verses seven and nine. Paul, listen to how he just talks about these brothers and sisters in the faith. He says, for this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Paul was not flattering. Remember that. He said that at the beginning of the letter. I'm not going to flatter you. What I say to you is genuine. It's real. It's authentic. And what he's expressing here is a deep affection for these believers that he hasn't really known for very long. Both Paul and the Thessalonian Christians were in distress and affliction during their time of being torn apart. But Paul is comforted by how the Lord is taking care of his church, by their being healthy and faithful witnesses. And so he says, all the joy that we feel for your sake, his heart was bound up in the well-being of these believers. He was invested in these other believers. And he found his joy in their spiritual prosperity. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's not just an occasional thing. That's a lifestyle for the church. That we, when things go well, when we prosper, when we win, we rejoice together. We are invested in one another. And when we suffer, when we go through difficult times, we weep together. And that creates a bond between us by the power of the Holy Spirit that intertwines our lives. In chapter 5, verse 11, Paul's going to state it simply. And this is the most clear and simple statement of his command to the church. He says there, encourage one another and build one another up. That is a responsibility before the Lord for every Christian, is to encourage one another and build one another up. We are to bear one another's burdens, both by serving one another and by giving encouragement one another and coming alongside one another and comforting one another in the midst of our trials. And what that requires is openness. And vulnerability. And that is very difficult to maintain among sinners. But it is the key to mutual encouragement. It is the key to bearing one another's burdens. Paul here speaks of his distress and his affliction as he expresses concern for their distress and their affliction in his absence. And I'm, I'm really struck by the fact we tend to think of Paul. When you think of the Apostle Paul, I don't know if you had the same impression I did early on, but I, I used to think of Paul as like kind of one of those, I mean, you read the book of Romans or the book of Galatians, you think, man, he must've been one of those ivory tower types. I mean, just kind of a, a cold scholar, intellectual, not very emotional, but if, if you, you're not really reading Paul's letters if that's what you're seeing in Paul. Paul is very warm in his expressions of love and concern, of his vulnerability, He doesn't just express concern for the sufferings and afflictions of other brothers and sisters in Christ. He shares his own openly. How often does Paul talk about his sufferings, physical sufferings, persecutions, and his internal strugglings as well, his fears, his doubts, his concerns. Paul is a very open brother in the Lord. And because of that, he was able to bond in a way. I mean, you think the way he talks about these Christians in Thessalonica, he would only been with them for maybe just a few weeks, at most a couple of months. How could he love them this deeply? It's because he was open and vulnerable. He wept with them and he rejoiced with them. And even in their absence, he prayed for them continuously, earnestly. He was deeply invested. And I do think that's one of the common problems in the church especially in this kind of individualistic culture where we build our own little kingdoms and set up our own little fortresses and build kind of a wall around who we are and what we're about and we become self-sufficient and self-reliant. I think we have to work especially hard in this culture to lower the walls, to open the windows, to open the doors, to be accessible, to be vulnerable to each other as believers, to let other people into our lives I know that some of us see some Christians, and for maybe narcissistic reasons, they, they're too open. They share all their concerns, all their pains, all their struggles, and, and we don't want to be like that. So, we, 98% of us go to the other extreme and we don't open up at all. We don't offer up prayer requests, we don't share our lives, we don't talk about how we're struggling. Oh, maybe we'll talk about a broken leg or if we have to go in for a surgery or something like that. We'll share those kind of burdens. But what about the doubts? What about the fears? What about the lack of spiritual growth you're seeing in your life? What Those kinds of internal things. Paul shared those things. And as a result, he was bonded with his brothers and sisters in Christ. When I was in seminary, I had uh, the church that my wife and I were a part of during those seminary years was It was in the North Hills of Pittsburgh, Pastor Tweed, John Tweed, godly, wonderful, godly pastor near retirement, loved him dearly. He um, preached a sermon one Sunday. It's amazing how sermons will stick with you decades later. He preached a sermon one Sunday about Barnabas. He just used kind of followed Barnabas through the book of Acts and kind of introduced us to who scripture says Barnabas was. And he, of course, began by pointing out that in the original language, the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. And then he showed us how that was lived out in Barnabas' life all through the book of Acts. The first time we meet Barnabas is back when, remember at the early church, how they sold their possessions, sold their lands and their possessions so that they could give to the needs of the poor in the church. And Barnabas was named as leading the pack. He was the one named who who stepped forward to encourage and build up the church by selling his property so that the needs of the poor could be met. The next time we meet Barnabas was when Saul, the great persecutor of the church, this apostle Paul, before he was converted. When Paul became a Christian, when Christ revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus, Paul came to Ananias. Ananias was fearful of Paul, but, but he, because the Lord told him, you must accept him, you must begin to, to teach him, he did. But then what we read in the book of Acts is the whole early church, the church in Jerusalem was scared of Paul. Why wouldn't they be? He was the great leader of the persecution against the church. He'd stood over the approval of the execution of Christians. Well, how could they trust him? How could they believe in him? You know how it happened? Barnabas stepped forward. Barnabas took Saul, Paul, now Paul, to the other apostles and stood up for him and advocated for him, built him up and encouraged him. Then we see the next time we run up against Barnabas is when he is sent to the church in Antioch. Antioch was the first church outside of Jerusalem where they were, the Christians were called Christians one of the earliest church planted, and Barnabas was sent there to build up and encourage the church, and they actually brought Paul there for the first time. Then the next time we see Barnabas is when he becomes the right-hand man to Paul on his first missionary journey and traveled with him all over the Roman Empire, planting churches and strengthening and encouraging Christians. And then the next time we see Barnabas, he's standing up for John Mark, John Mark his cousin, because John Mark had failed miserably somehow on that first missionary journey when he was with Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul did not want to take him on the second journey. But Barnabas, the encourager, stood up for John Mark. And he stood up to him to the point where Paul and Barnabas actually part ways at that point. But Barnabas gets vindicated later because John Mark is called by Paul himself who say he was useful to me in ministry. And John Mark is the one who wrote the first gospel. his whole point of his sermon, Pastor Tweed's sermon was, you need to be like Barnabas. That's to be the nature of every believer. And one of the applications, I'll never forget, one of the applications of his sermons was that he had made up postcards, regular postcards and send them in the mail. And they were blue cards and he called them Barnabas cards. And he stuck a bunch of them in all the pews. And he said, I want you to take Barnabas cards. I want you to write a note of encouragement to one of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Whether it's somebody working in the nursery, somebody teaching your kid in Sunday school, somebody who's greeting you at the door, one of the officers, write a note of encouragement and send it out this week. And those cards were in the pews for the next three years. While the whole time I was in seminary, those cards were there. They may still be there for all I know. Barnabas cards. Now, I know some of you don't even own stamps and some of you don't even know what a postcard is, but email works just as well. Texting works just as well, although emails are better because you can be more elaborate about what the encouragement you want to give. I just would encourage you to do that. I, you know, I honestly, I'll be honest with you, I, don't, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the notes of encouragement that I get. I do get emails encouraging me for my work in the church, but that's easy. I'm up here up front. I'm the, I'm the most obvious one up here this morning. Don't stop sending the encouragement. I, I can't tell you how much I really, I literally cannot express in words how much your encouragement means when you send me those notes. But please send them to each other. You have so many servants. I have never been in a church that has more hardworking, higher percentage of hardworking servants in the membership of the church than this one. Please send notes of encouragement. If you don't send it, grab them after church and pull them alongside and just say, I really appreciate what you're doing. That's what it means to encourage one another and build one another up in the faith. Again and again in Paul's writings, we see that it's the spiritual growth of the believers under his care and under his teaching that gives him life. Let me read that verse to you again. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul was energized to see God using his efforts to build others up in faith and to encourage them in their walk with the Lord, to see fruit being born in their lives. That's why in verse 10, he says, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul deeply longed to be continued to be used to encourage and build up the faith of these believers in Thessalonica. In a healthy church, you not only see great teamwork, but you see great love and vulnerability and humility and interdependence among members in a good and healthy church we got the Super Bowl coming up later today, and I spent 20 years living in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Even though I'm a Pittsburgh born and bred, I love the Eagles as well. I love them through all the years of losing, so it's with great joy that I anticipate them playing in the Super Bowl. But I've enjoyed them this year probably more than any year before, but because of the personalities involved in that team, there are so many believers, professing believers among the Philadelphia Eagles. And the two of the most prominent ones are Carson Wentz and his backup, Nick Foles. And it's just been so encouraging to me to watch these two Christians. Both of them are very bold about their faith. Carson Wentz is probably one of the most bold athletes I've ever heard about his faith. And Nick Foles wants to be a youth pastor when he finishes his playing career. And it's just been so great to watch these two because you know Carson Wentz, most of you know, he went down with a knee injury that put him out for the rest of the season after leading them to uh, the playoffs. He was not able to play the rest of the season, won't be playing in the Super Bowl. Nick Foles has stepped in. And what's been so wonderful to watch is watch Carson Wentz and Nick Foles support and encourage one another through this. I love watching, they, they put the camera on, on, on Carson Wentz during the game to show him how he reacts to Nick Foles doing good things on the field. And nobody is more excited for Nick Foles than Carson Wentz. And you know, that's just sports. But to me, it's a picture of what we are to be as Christians for one another. So it's so often I listen to Christians interact with one another and you think we're against one another, but we are to be for one another because we are in Christ. Okay, so we are to be dependent on one another. We're to be interdependent. We're to be mutually encouraging and building one another up. We are to be open and vulnerable with one another. Doesn't that lead to codependency? How do you know where to draw the line? How do you know avoid getting into unhealthy close relationships? Well, that's the last half of this passage, which, where Paul reveals to us the ultimate absolute dependence that we must have upon the Lord Jesus Christ. When it comes down to it, ultimately, he is the one on whom we depend, and he is the only one on whom we depend. Paul rejoiced that these believers were standing fast, not just that they were standing fast, or he doesn't rejoice that they were standing fast in Paul and, and Silas. He rejoices that they were standing fast in the Lord. And he shows his own ultimate dependency upon the Lord by praying for these brothers and sisters. He has three petitions in this prayer in verses 11 through 13. The first petition is that the Lord would bring them back together again. That they would be able to see each other face to face and that Paul would be able to fill up what is lacking through his teaching of the word. That's his prayer. But in that prayer, he's acknowledging that that's the Lord's decision, that the Lord is sovereign, that the Lord is the one who ranges believers to come together. It's his church, they're his people, and it's entirely up to the Lord. We know that it's probably a fact that Paul did not get back to the church in Thessalonica for five more years. He wanted to go back that day, and yet the Lord had him wait five more years until he went through that area again on his third missionary journey. Paul longed to see them face to face, but the Lord Jesus had a better plan. And who knows, maybe part of that plan was so that these Thessalonian Christians wouldn't become codependent with Paul. Maybe they needed to see other leaders step forward and to see what leadership is in the church. And it's not about Paul. Paul never wanted it to be, you know, about him or Apollos or Peter. The second petition is that the Lord would make their love for others, both inside and outside the church, increase and abound. Paul knew that he had no capability to make these believers love God and love their neighbor. He depended 100% upon the Lord to do that, and they needed to depend upon the Lord for that as well. The third petition is that the Lord would establish their hearts blameless in holiness, that they would become mature, that they would bear the spiritual fruit, that they would become like Christ. And again, Paul acknowledges that that only comes by the power of Christ working by his spirit in the heart of these believers. It depended upon Christ, not upon Paul. The word established there means to strengthen or to buttress. In other words, to make something unmovable, to enable them to stand firm, no matter what the circumstances. You see, in Paul's prayer, he is communicating to these new believers that pastors and Bible study leaders and teachers are going to come and go. Yes, Paul wanted to be the one that would supply what was lacking in their faith, but the Lord could use anyone for the same purpose. God speaks through vessels who are faithful to communicate his word. God spoke through a donkey once. So no pastor, teacher, or Bible study leader should feel indispensable to the work of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's interesting because Paul is writing this letter from Corinth. He writes the letter of 1 Thessalonians from Corinth. And in the um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he talks about the division that was going on there. Remember what the division was about? Some said, oh, I'm of, I'm of Paul. And others said, I'm of Apollos. And others said, no, I'm of Peter. No, others said, I'm, of, I'm, of, I'm pure. I'm of Jesus Christ. And they're all caught up in in the personalities of their leaders. And it was a codependent relationship, I think. And so Paul, in, in responding to that situation, listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse five. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. You see, that's how you need to look at all who are your brothers and sisters in the Lord who enable you to grow in faith, who encourage you and and come alongside you and comfort you. Yes, love them. They're close to you, but they are servants through whom the Lord has worked in your life. They are ones that he has chosen and assigned to you. If you're a member of this church, he has assigned you to this family of believers. But it is the Lord that you look to ultimately. And it is on him only that you rely. Paul here is basically saying the same thing that John the Baptist said, which is you must not follow me, but follow Christ. I am only here to point you to Christ. I am a friend of the bridegroom. And my whole job is to get you to love the bridegroom, to get you to to serve him more effectively, to live your life around him. To stand fast in him. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the vine to which we are only branches. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the rock upon which our feet stand and upon him alone. He is all sufficient. He is the source of all good things in our lives. And he is sufficient for all our needs. And he is, as Paul says at the end of this chapter, coming again, and that is our hope. He's all we need, and he will never leave us or forsake us. You know, it's the gospel is the reason you could be open and vulnerable. People who don't know Christ, people who are outside the church, they find it very difficult, should find it a lot more difficult than you and I who know the Lord Jesus Christ, to be open and to be vulnerable. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you may have wondered, how could I ever be open and vulnerable like you're talking about with other people? Because other people are sinners. Other people are mean. Other people offend me. Other people hurt me. It's because Jesus Christ died for our sins and is raised for our justification is the reason that we can be open and vulnerable because we are going to hurt each other. I'm going to offend you. I'm going to to hurt you. I'm going to harm you. I'm a sinner just like you are. We're going to hurt each other. But the reason we can still be open and vulnerable with one another is because the gospel is true. I have been forgiven, and I've been called to forgive just as I have been forgiven. You know, I find my identity in a lot of things. When I think, who is Dan Keel? Somebody says, who is Dan Keel? You know, I might point to a lot of things that give me a sense of identity. I might point to where I come from, up in Pennsylvania, in the backwoods of Pennsylvania. That says something about who I am. might say something about where I went to school. I may say something about where I went to seminary. I may talk about my job, what I do in my ministry. I might talk about who I'm married to or who my kids are. I might talk about what music I like or what sports teams I follow. And all these things kind of get wrapped up in an identity. But all of that is secondary and all of that is ultimately unimportant. My identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. Christian means I am a little Christ. I belong to Christ. And that is my primary identity and everything else is related to that. And that primary dependence upon Christ frees us up to be vulnerable and dependent upon others. As it says in Psalm 27, listen to what the psalmist says. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. My friends may forsake me, but the Lord will take me in. My co-workers may forsake me, but the Lord will take me in. My children may forsake me, but the Lord will take me in. There is my confidence, there is my security, there is my identity. Again, let me give you the definition of codependency. It's an excessive emotional or psychological reliance on another person for approval and a sense of identity. In light of what we've seen in this passage, you can see that what codependency is, is idolatry. It's putting another sinner in the place that only belongs to Jesus Christ. My sense of approval and my sense of identity comes from him alone. And it is idolatry to put another person in that place, but a lot of us do it all the time. You can actually define faith in those terms. You could say that faith is an emotional and psychological reliance upon Jesus Christ for your approval before God the Father and others and your sense of identity. You are in Christ. And that is the job of Christian parents, isn't it? It's our job as Christian parents. We take these these infants and these toddlers that are so 150% dependent on us for everything in their lives. But over the course of their their childhood, as they get to the point where they start to become independent, the whole idea is to transfer their dependence from us as parents to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are not ready to leave home until they are able to depend upon Christ and not upon us as parents. And honestly, that's some of the biggest parenting mistakes I've ever seen, is when parents refuse to let go and, re- and refuse to step out of the place of being the one that their kids look to for everything. Victory and success is when they find their sense of approval and their sense of identity in Christ and in him alone. According to scripture, we believers are all vital members of the body of Christ. We're hands, we're feet, we're neck, we're shoulders, we're biceps, whatever. Our, We are all different parts of the body of Christ and therefore we are interdependent and we're only going to be healthy as long as we are dependent upon one another. Each one does its part. But our absolute identity and our absolute approval comes from the head of the body, Jesus Christ himself. We can easily become too dependent upon our parents, upon our children, upon our spouses, and upon our friends. But there is no such thing as being too dependent upon Jesus Christ. There's no such thing. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 15 says, Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And we can easily let our sense of identity get too wrapped up in other people, but there's no such thing as having your identity too wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians chapter two, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When you make Christ the center of your life, you find out who you truly were designed to be. There's where you find your identity and you won't find it in this world anywhere. Philippians chapter one, verse 21, Paul says, for me to live is Christ, And to die is gain. We need to depend upon one another. And we need to form a sense of identity in our commitment to one another. But ultimately, Christ is Lord. And he is the source of who we are. And he is the source of all that we depend upon. If we remember that, then we will be able to truly reach out to one another. Know one another. Be vulnerable with one another and have the healthy kind of relationships that actually draw us closer to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray for parents and children here who have looked to each other to fill needs that only Christ can fill. I pray for engaged couples, dating couples, and married couples who look to each other to fill needs that only Christ can ultimately fulfill. I pray for those of us who look to friends to give us our sense of approval and our sense of identity I pray, Lord, that we would learn by your grace, according to your word, to look to Christ for our approval and for our identity. Father, thank you for sending your son. and Thank you that we live as we know him and as we build one another up in the faith, as we are energized by the ministry that comes from believers to other believers. May this church be filled with your spirit and filled with that kind of energy. We pray in Christ's name, amen.